Herzlich willkommen zu Hamburg hört ein Hu, dem Podcast der HW Hamburg rund um die Hamburg und Online University. Kurz Hu. Mein Name ist Christian Friedrich und ich begrüße heute im Dezember 2019 Marin Deepwell bei uns im Podcast. And this is also the time for me to switch to English, which is a premiere of sorts in this podcast. Um, Marin, we're glad to have you here. I'm glad to have you here in this podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Um, give us the picture. Who's Marin Deepwell? Well, hello, everyone. And I am really delighted to be Christian's first English-speaking guest. And I hope that you will all be able to follow on our conversation. And also, hopefully, that will encourage other more international guests to learn about the exciting work that's going on in Hamburg. So as Christian said, my name is Maren Deepwell, and I am the chief executive of a professional body and a membership body, the Association for Learning Technology in the UK. We were established in 1993, mm -hmm. and I've worked for the association since 2008, and I am involved in all sorts of projects that might be of real interest to this community. So we do work a lot with education professionals, so mm -hmm. lecturers, researchers, um, and also with students and senior management to look at all aspects of using digital technology for learning, teaching, and assessment. And we do events and we publish research. And one of the things we really believe in is collaboration and openness, which is why I'm keen to um, reach out to this community and kind of share a bit about mm -hmm. what we do. Now, in terms of who I am, I started, as I said, working with ALT in 2008. And I was still a PhD student at the time. So I was studying at UCL in London and I studied anthropology. And one of my summer jobs at the Department of Anthropology at UCL was to set up this new thing that they had just introduced called Moodle. And oh. my head of department put out a summer job for a PhD student to help build all the Moodle modules. And that's how I got into learning technology. So Moodle. Moodle yeah. was your entry. <laughs> well, um, WebCT was mm -hmm. actually the, the system that I used first as a student. But building anthropology Moodle modules was my way into learning technology. And then a few years later, my husband and I moved to Oxford from London. And I was still a student at the time. And I was looking for a job um, that was near where I lived because I didn't have a car. Mm -hmm. And so there was a job posted for the Association for Learning Technology for a maternity cover position to help out with some administration and project work. And I applied for that job. And it was meant to be for six months. Mm -hmm. um, and my boss at the time, my predecessor, um, he said, oh, you know, you should really consider, you know, you've got real thing for learning technology, making a big difference. You should consider staying. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm going to be an academic. I'm uh -huh. going to be an anthropologist. Um, and here we are 11 years later. <laughs> and I think it's fair to say that I fell in love with this sector and I fell in love with the work that we do. Um, but because I trained as an anthropologist and as a sculptor before then, I've always been very interested in the human dimension mm -hmm. in educational technology and how people relate to technology and particularly how non-expert people relate to technology. And I think that's where my heart still lies. And a lot of the work I do day to day, working with government, working with universities, um, working with individual teachers, um, is all about thinking about the sort of messy side, the human side, and 
sort of maybe what you can't necessarily get from a spreadsheet or a mm -hmm. dashboard, the sort of gray areas of learning technology is where I'm particularly interested. So almost like the the fringes and the 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 I think Autumn Keynes would now start start speaking about liminal spaces and, <laughs> and all that, right? Absolutely, yeah. yes. Okay, but that's quite a journey, isn't it? Like you said, you joined in 2008 um, as a maternity cover, yeah. um, in a maternity cover position is, I think, probably somewhat the correct term. Yeah. Um, and now you're CEO. When I think CEO since 2012. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. that's quite a transition. Yeah, it really was. Um, I was really fortunate um, that a couple of other job opportunities came up within the association mm -hmm. in that time. So um, we are a very small staffed organization because most of our work is done by volunteers and our members. Uh, we only employ six people and I was fortunate I was able to apply for a job when it came up. Mm -hmm. um, and then my predecessor retired in 2012 and I kind of put in the application for the job um, and I thought I had kind of maybe a chance of getting it, but I wasn't that confident But I really thought I would could make a positive difference. And I'm really passionate about running volunteer-led organizations. Our charitable organization is funded purely by its members. And we are independent from government. So what we do very effectively is to advocate for the needs of learning technology mm -hmm. professionals or educational technology independent from industry and independent from government. And we think it's really important to have this kind of community-focused voice. Um, and that's really what I was so passionate about. And that's why I applied for the job. But um, yeah, I think it was a brave appointment for the association because I'm probably a bit um, not your typical um, CEO, at least on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure nobody's regretting their decision. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um. It's also if you if you you mentioned like in you you started with with Moodle and WebCT, um, and I don't want to pin it down to technologies, but there's also since 2008 or since 2012, there's been lots of different narratives that have been kind of pushed on people who kind of want to engage with learning and technology and who kind of want to want to do that kind of work. That, that you do and others do who are um, associated in, in alt and with alt? Alt or alt? alt. Um, works Is, either way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's plenty of changes and, and developments, I, I guess, that you could speak a bit about to, to some extent like is there do, did you see any certain evolvements at for example higher ed partner institutions or institutions in higher ed in general mm -hmm. in the UK and how that kind of influenced your work as someone who's trying to foster and facilitate and help help build a community mm. oh great question um, well one of the really big shifts that I've seen over the last sort of 10, 12 years is that when I started working in the sector, we had already moved beyond kind of just discovering and we'd mm -hmm. sort of gotten to the stage of doing small scale pilots where you used really innovative technologies in one class for one course in one degree or in one faculty. And that had a big impact. But a lot of the time, these sort of innovative projects weren't scaled up. 
They weren't done for every student in the mm -hmm. university. They weren't done for every member of faculty. Very few people gained the necessary skills to use, you know, very, uh, like, let's say at that time, maybe video or podcasting like this one, or maybe now more um, augmented and virtual reality. And The biggest shift is that now we're at a stage where there is a complete desire for every student to have the same opportunities for every course, for every department, every faculty, um, to have the same range of, of opportunities. And I think that has become more tricky as we've realized that scaling up is actually very little about infrastructure and mm -hmm. about, you know, rooms and tech and kits and stuff but it's much more about building the capacity within staff so you know we're starting with basic digital literacy for all staff which mm -hmm. is much harder i think than many people thought it was on the outset it sounded like a really like a given like a no-brainer you would say in english and then you kind of try and do that and then you realize oh you know That's, that's quite a complex thing. You have to get the same equipment for everyone. They have to be starting from the same starting point. You really need to think about equity and access mm -hmm. much more when you scale up. And then once you have a basic level of digital literacy, then you realize actually that's not quite enough to make effective use. Then you have to think about the pedagogy. Then you have to think about subject-specific requirements. Or maybe also you have to think about the fact that technology keeps moving on and so people have to learn new stuff. So it's never really a done mm -hmm. thing. You're never there. Um, so the, the scale of the undertaking has become much bigger. And in the UK in particular, you see many universities now have specific strategies that discuss the digital aims or learning technology aims or educational technology aims and how to embed that in student success. So that's one big area, I think, that's mm -hmm. been very different. Um, and the other, I suppose, would be that there is a, a strong kind of growth in the just the sheer volume of devices and technology we have available so um, a lot of technology that 10 15 years ago wasn't affordable is now ubiquitous and everybody can have it but at the same time we've got more social inequalities in terms of the students themselves so you know you can't assume that every student will have a phone mm -hmm. that's mobile um that that has the internet access in their pocket or you can't necessarily assume that everyone has the same internet access or broadband connection so if you are um providing services that for students that are dependent on a mobile device or a strong internet connection you also have to think about you know what inequalities you are creating mm -hmm. and i think there's been a stronger recognition of those implications and making sure that we reach out to students and giving them equal opportunities and that has been you know thought about more when it comes to admissions processes and about lifelong learning and there is a lot still to uncover here um but that i think we weren't as aware of maybe 10 15 years ago mm -hmm. it wasn't as big an issue um and then one more area i want to mention that is close to my heart and i think is very difficult to talk about is to sort of broader ethical implications of using learning technology so we have much more capability now in educational technology to track and collect information about learners and about staff and we've really got an unprecedented level of information and our understanding of the ethical implications of that continue really to develop very quickly 
So I know that in Germany, they are much more, or in my perception is at any rate, that there are much stricter laws around data privacy and sort of governing mm. um, governing those processes. Um, but I think globally speaking, there is now more concern. And I think students and staff are waking up more to the um, implications of giving away data, of just opting into terms and conditions. Um, and so some projects that I've been aware of um, that we can maybe put in the show notes, such as the LACE project, mm -hmm. um, which has developed a checklist called the Delicate Checklist, which is like eight steps to greater um, data ethics transparency okay. and around yes. learning analytics. Yeah. Um, it's a really good checklist that um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, and I think it's a really good starting point for institutions to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So if you're starting to develop online courses, or if you're starting to use learning analytics, or if you use a lot of things like, you know, dashboards, um, I think there's some really useful questions about, you know, is it really necessary and how transparent mm -hmm. is it for students? So that is one area that maybe 10, 15 years ago, very few people really talked about in, in my community. Okay, interesting. So... <laughs> the too many topics yeah no it's a, it, but that is great that is that actually gives us the chance to take a deep dive into each topic for the next 45 minutes so listeners better get 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 something to drink and then sit back no, but I, i think it, but that connects really well I, th i remember when uh when i was preparing for, for our conversation a bit um i watched your keynote at etug and uh you spoke about being not only and and you kind of hinted at that in, in your introduction as well being not only a learning technologist and being someone who kind of facilitates other learning technologists to do to do their work but also to be a bit at least like a, a tiny little bit like an anthropologist and to focus on the um kind of the the way this that humans interact with one another but also with with artifacts and in, in technology and, and and such so i'm not sure what my question there is but i'm i'm wondering what whether how you if you could point to an example or two maybe where you think that that perspective kind of helped you find a common path maybe a compromise which your work probably often entails but also maybe a new way of thinking about a certain thing or just like a good a good way to make sense of a certain problem yeah um one of the things that comes to mind immediately is online events and mm -hmm. webinars so um I organize quite a lot of online events and our community is quite distributed throughout the whole of the UK, but also internationally. And when you're organizing and inviting people, I think it takes a lot of thinking about what their experience is taking part. Mm -hmm. So I know for sure that they're going to sit in front of some sort of device or they have some sort of device they're going to be able to listen. They don't necessarily have a camera or not necessarily the bandwidth to see me. And they are going to not know who else is in the room. And one of the things I do a lot of is to prepare and support presenters who speak online. So I think you've done a lot of that yourself in, in various ways. And um, we, we do dip into a lot of virtual connectivity mm -hmm. together. Um, but I think that's where thinking about the human dimension and like having a more anthropological mindset is really important. 
because there's a lot of foregrounding that you can do. So for example, I often send people pictures of the room that they might be contributing to when they're mm -hmm. speaking online. Or I might send them a picture of me where I am at my desk. Or maybe I will share um, my screen and I'll show them um, my cat Hermes, who's often um, sleeping in my office. I work from home and he sleeps under my desk. And so he will come and say hello. Or I'll show them that I've made a cup of tea and I'll show it to the actual camera. Or maybe I will talk about, you know, what um, what the weather is like where I am mm -hmm. and they might share that back and so we kind of establish some sort of context for where the other person is although we can't really see each other or we're not in the same place mm -hmm. and similarly I think I've given a lot of online talks and um, when you're kind of you know beamed in so to speak um, and you have no idea how big the room is how many people are mm -hmm. in it is it like a lecture theater is it you know like a flat floored room is it bright is it dark how is the weather is everybody grumpy because the coffee machine wasn't working you know Or there the is actually yeah. there's so many factors mm -hmm. that make such a difference um, and The ETA conference was a really good example of that because it's a community that I only ever interacted with online. And Clint Lalonde, the um, organizers, uh, one of the organizers of their conference in Canada in June this year, um, he made such an effort to meet up with me a couple of times online beforehand mm -hmm. and give me lots of information of background on what I was coming to. Mm -hmm. So that he was really thinking about me as an individual making my first ever trip to Canada and how I wouldn't know anyone and know where to go. And, you know, he really prepared for me as a person. But we'd spend very little time talking about the technology or what I was actually going to be doing like technically mm -hmm. and I think that is a really good example sort of online events actually I think you're much more um, successful if you think more about the human interaction with the technology rather than have I set up the webinar correctly and is this platform going to work for everyone so more the more more concern of around humans and less around the wiring whereas the wiring has to kind of work too I think so. Mm. And I mean, day to day, I run um, a team which all of whom work from mm -hmm. home and we're a virtual organization, which is quite unusual for a charity like us. But we made that transition two years ago. And ever since then, I think I've learned even more about how important it is mm -hmm. to, you know, think about if, you know, if someone... Um, Like we have a joke internally that like when the internet isn't working or your heating isn't working or something, we have mm -hmm. the equivalent of a snow day. So, you know, when it snows a lot and you can't go to work um, and there's sort of lots of little um, equivalencies like that, that when you interact face to face, you would kind of naturally take those hints and you'd see someone coming in and they were wet or cold or hungry, um, you know, but when you're online, you're kind of missing those visual cues because you're not in the same space and you have to make a lot more effort to be saying those things out loud and asking people about mm -hmm. it be more explicit and some of the most successful online collaborations i've been part of people have been very um capable and very experienced in facilitating that and i think maha bali um One of the colleagues we both know mm -hmm. who is based in Egypt and does a lot of her work online. Um, I think I've learned so much from her. She's a very inspirational online collaborator. Um, and she is extremely skilled in sharing information about people that gives them a sense of who, she, who Maha is, mm -hmm. what's her day like, what is her environment like, and they feel they really connect. So I think that's part of um, really thinking about, you know, the that all of that is still very important 
even if you are just text chatting or just doing a podcast or even if there is video. Um, a lot of that is, is still what I think people need to really connect and make a meaningful interaction and really gain that sort of experience that they feel they were taking part in something. And that is ultimately what I think in my experience makes for very successful, you know, sustainable collaboration and communities and mm -hmm. networks. You need to get that sense that you're really engaging with other people. There's also a great, I think, and I think you just published it two, one or two weeks ago, a post by Martin, your, your colleague, Martin Hoxie, who published a post about how the virtual collaboration in your team works, kind of what devices you use, but also how, what routines, what practices go into making that kind of work efficient, effective, but also, uh, can kind of connect as a connecting tissue almost be between the, uh, within the team. Um, Coming back maybe a bit to the work that you do at Alt and kind of connect that to it, um, what is CMALT and how would you think that plays into all of that to some extent? And I think that has, as far as I can tell from the outside, that has the, the is it, would you say it's a program or is it uh, like the CMALT um, framework. framework has kind yeah. of taken a couple of laps over the couple last couple of years as well in evolving to what it is today, maybe. Um, you could go into that a bit. Certainly. Mm -hmm. So as a professional body, one of the questions that you know we think about a lot is if you want to use technology for teaching or learning, mm -hmm. what do you need to what do you need to do that successfully? What sort of professional skills and attributes do you need in order to succeed not just in one project but as a career? And those are the this is at the heart of what we do as a professional body. Now, 10 years ago, um, we decided to formalize that and to make a framework that would express what we believe are the areas in which you need to have competencies. Um, and it goes kind of, it's, I suppose, an extension of many digital literacy frameworks. Mm -hmm. But instead of being relevant to everyone, in all areas of a university or college or school. Um, it specifically focuses on the sort of more expert skills, I suppose you would say, that staff have who have a focus on using technology. So they might be doing other things as well, but they have a focus on that. Mm -hmm. And so we published that 10 years ago, and then it was quite a, a small number of people speaking in terms of the scale of the project at the time who actually had specialist roles like that and so it took quite a while for it to gain enough momentum because there, there weren't enough people really whom this applied to but now there are a lot of people who this applies to and so we have um, last year we have expanded the framework to kind of provide a more graduated picture of professional practice and what we also do is accredit individuals um, pro um, provide a professional certification for individuals who complete a portfolio of practice demonstrating their capabilities mm -hmm. in all these different areas so to give you an idea of what's included um, the framework has four core principles that really talk about the values that we think professionals need to have. And that includes things like communicating and disseminating practice. Mm -hmm. And includes things like um, sort of being open and being willing to learn from different um, colleagues. So okay. 
our assumption is that you'd work with lots of different subject specialists or with researchers, with teachers, with learners. So you need to have a certain um, flexibility, so to speak, to, to kind of take all these different perspectives and try and advise on the best solution. Um, and you also need to recognize that you keep continuously having to update your own knowledge so that you can advise on new tools and new platforms and new tech, shiny mm -hmm. new things that come out. <laughs> so there's four core principles in total. Um, and then there is also, um, if we imagine a portfolio to be kind of like a document with different sections, um, each um, there's four core areas which cover all areas of work. So one of them would be about using technology for learning, teaching and assessment. One would be about communication. One is about the wider context. And that's actually my personal favorite because it thinks about things like copyright policies, mm -hmm. um, different types of licensing, um, privacy, and, and sort of the, the sort of broader context of procedures and policies that we operate in, either within an institution or in the country or globally. And then the first part of the portfolio looks at the use of technology and actually thinking about the interplay between learning and technology. So as a framework, it's aligned to other frameworks, maybe some of you will have heard of, um, such as the UK Professional Standards Framework, mm -hmm. um, the UK PSF. It's also aligned to um, a UK-based framework called the JISC Digital Literacies um, mm -hmm. Framework or Digital Capabilities Framework. But we're always looking for, you know, other frameworks to map it to. And we haven't yet mapped it to an international one. So any listeners out there with a the framework <laughs> keen to do a mapping, let us know. Um, but the idea is really that it offers professional accreditation that is specifically relevant and that institutions, you know, can offer their staff as a way to gain recognition and progress in their careers. And I've, um, so I've, done this myself kind of not with my ceo hat on but as a mm -hmm. practitioner and as a professional and um, i'm now a certified senior um c-mold holder and one of the things that i've written about in my own portfolio was leadership okay and leadership and managing learning technology and one of the other things i wrote about was equality in learning technology so that's another area that's close to my heart okay so if anybody wants to um, have a think about how this might be applicable to them, all of the resources um, are online and freely accessible, the whole framework and all the guidance. So if any of your listeners want to have a look and think about how this could maybe be relevant to them, um, you're most welcome. Also, from at least from, from my perspective, again, from the outside, kind of looking in, looking over to like the island, um, it also seems like you've, you're not only providing a framework for professional qualification and then like standard setting and all that, but you're also providing a framework for people to connect and to build a community on their own, kind of like they're, from my perspective, it looks like they are, people are given kind of a space to engage in and with one another. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, it does go beyond um, a sort of accreditation pathway. Mm -hmm. We do, so one of the things I ought to mention is that um, CMALT is a peer-assessed scheme. So it's all community-assessed. Right. So in yeah. order to get accredited, mm -hmm. you have to have two other people. Um, it's a bit like peer review of papers, really, mm -hmm. for conferences. Um, and so as soon as you're accredited, you become a peer reviewer. And so 
um, I really love assessing portfolios. It's great CPD. <laughs> you get to learn about someone else's job and what they do, and it's mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, but it means that you're sort of part of the sort of community and you assess two or three portfolios each year. And so you have a continual line of engagement. But we also, um, you know, have very active certified members in all other areas of our network. And maybe just to talk a bit about the scale of our network. So we currently have three and a half thousand members. Wow. And um, most of our members are based in the UK and they include both um, organizations, mostly universities, Mm -hmm. um, but also primarily individuals. So we also have international members um, all across Europe, including Germany and, but also across the globe. But most of our work is done in the UK and we have local groups that meet up regionally so that we save a little bit of our air miles and we don't do everything Mm -hmm. just by plane internationally or in the center of the UK. But we most of our collaboration is all done online and our accreditation um, framework, CMOLD, is kind of at the heart of what Mm -hmm. we do. So it's um, the cornerstone of what we do, so to speak. Yeah. Nice. It's interesting uh, when you mentioned that CMOLD is also something that happens not only online but also internationally because my my sense is that the work that you do tends tends to do that, tends to, to evolve that way. I remember me personally, I recognized the OER conference as a, as a conference that I wanted to attend, I think in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, And even though it felt like I had missed some things and some conferences before that, it kind of felt that ever since 2015, 2016, um, and I remember 2016 was, I think, Edinburgh, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That the international community around the open educational conferences that you as all organized, I think, also since, what, 2013? Something like that? No, I think it's, um, I think... Fifth, like the OER conference, uh-huh. um, obviously took place before we organized yeah. it, but I think the first one we were really active with was um, 2014. Okay, so but my impression was that th- it has been evolving to become this almost the go-to conference internationally in, in for for open educators to, uh, especially if they want to think about some things a bit more critically than at other conferences that might take place, I don't know, in continental Europe and in, in cities <laughs> that we're at right now, but also in, in other places, even when they are framed as open educational uh, conferences. And I'm not asking you to like uh, take a swing at all the other open ed conference, but maybe talk a bit more about um, what kind of you think has enabled you to do that kind of work, but also mm. what kind of draws people into OER conferences as a theme. I think many people having visited a couple of OER conferences and knowing lots of people who have done so as well, mm-hmm. um, it's almost like uh, the, 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 there's a certain atmosphere, a certain vibe that goes with the OER conferences that make them, makes them kind of distingu- uh, indistinguishable or distinguishable from, from all the other conferences that are out there. Now I wonder what the secret sauce is, (laughs) what you can share about that. You know, I know the answer to that question, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But will we tell you all what our secret (laughs) recipe is? Um, Just to say, I think you're right. We're very privileged that our conference has got um, such a distinctive character, such a unique Mm -hmm. character, I think. Um, And as you say, there are many other really wonderful open education events all across the world. Um, And we are very 
um, grateful that many of the other events and many of the other movements around open education collaborate with us so productively. So, you know, that goes without saying, but we are happy that our event can be part of that community. Now, I think what makes our, um, what makes the OER conference different from, for us, what makes it special for us is that ALT is, as I said before, is a very independent organization. And I think it makes a big difference thinking about money when it comes to independence. And ALT is financially independent from both government funding and industry funding. And while we do get um, income from our events, including the OER conference, which is why it's not free, um, we've always kept um, complete control for our conference committee over the keynotes, over all the speaking slots. So if you want to speak at OER conferences, you need to submit a proposal and it will be blind peer reviewed and that applies to anyone who is a partner for the conference or a sponsor for the conference just the same as it does for every participant we've never um, included any of the speaking slots in conference packages to to buy and for us that makes a big difference to keep that independence it does mean that we have to charge people to come to the conference because it has to pay for itself. Um, and we try and, you know, we offer bursaries as well to keep it accessible. But I think that makes a big difference. So the other thing that I think is a contributing factor to keeping it unique is that ALT is politically independent. And we have a unique position in the UK in particular because there's actually no other um, educational technology body anymore that has an political agenda around open education so we work closely with other bodies such as you know wikimedia in the uk or creative commons in the uk but they have a much broader brief <laughs> our organization is the only one that has a national interest in open education in the uk and we do that because our members have this interest and we represent that to government and to policymakers. Um, but we also um, are at liberty to really talk about some of the difficult issues that come around open education and maybe that if we were a state-funded program we could not necessarily as easily or independently talk about mm -hmm. um, but i think the third ingredient of the secret sauce <laughs> and given that we have tins of soup this year this seems particularly um, um, relevant to talk about the recipe for oer i think what really sets it apart for us what makes it special to us is the people who lead the organizing of the conference. So it's volunteer-led by our co-chairs and our conference committee, and they have control over the program. They get to suggest all the keynotes that we invite. They think about the social program, the, the theme, the questions. And while we do provide a skeleton and a framework and we mm -hmm. help and support and organize, it's very much their vision. And our board of trustees... Um, are um, they appoint uh, co-chairs but we have an open call anyone can express an interest mm -hmm. and you can make a proposal to us and then the the board of trustees um, decides which of the people who express an interest gets to co-chair and they then do that and it's a non-renumerated role so it's all volunteer um, work and we're very fortunate that we have a very international committee of mm -hmm. people who do this and our committee meetings um, are every month and Sometimes there can be very heated discussions and people are very, you know, they have strong opinions and they voice them and they discuss it. And I think all of this um, conversation that goes into making the conference really shows through when you get there. Mm -hmm. 
And just to give you one example, um, one of the first conference committee meetings this year, we were um, saying we were looking for blog posts for people to write guest posts about the conference for the conference website and our colleague had made a whole schedule of dates for the whole year mm -hmm. like between now and i suppose the next six months not the whole year and we were saying okay so if you're interested in writing a post and i believe you may have written one yourself recently i might um, have you know you can volunteer and you can write about anything mm -hmm. you want um you know it's not edited you can say what you want make your voice heard and i think within five minutes the whole schedule was mm -hmm. full and um and i think that for me um when people think that they're or they, they know that their voices are being heard and that they can really say what they feel is relevant to the discourse for me that generates a completely different type of engagement than a sort of, you know, more symbolic way yeah. of being involved as a volunteer. And giving people power has a lot of risks for us as the organizers. So if, you know, I never quite know, <laughs> I never <laughs> quite know what the OER conference will be. Yeah. You know, I'm never quite sure what our keynotes are going to say. I'm never quite sure, you know, who they even are. But, um, but I trust in the community, mm -hmm. you know, I trust the people who organize it. And um, very few organizations, I think, that I've worked with in the past take that level of community engagement quite so far <laughs> as mm -hmm. we do. Um, it certainly makes my life interesting, but it makes the OER conference, I think, a very unique, um, for me at least, a very unique event with a real heartbeat mm -hmm. that, um, that I think I value very much. And you know there's trouble around the corner when somebody who's at least socialized in Britain says it makes my life interesting then that says a lot I think <laughs> uh, I would suppose so at least so but it's uh, me being like being a member of the conference committee this this year again um, I can basically double down on that I think would be the term um, I published a blog post this week and it I basically shared the the Google Doc in that case and I think an hour later or so it went up might have been because I was a little late but it's also um, it shows that there's almost this direct connection there's no vetting there's no oh did he reference the right people did he did he care about the the conference theme all that kind of stuff and I think because my, my experience is that when you put that kind of trust into a community and you kind of build that sense of, of trust, um, then usually you, or at least you will be rarely disappointed. At least that's my experience with that kind of work. People will kind of think twice before they write something because they don't want to put you in a difficult position. At least, at least that's what, that's what my hope would be at least to some extent. Well, I think it um, relates really well to thinking about participating online more mm -hmm. broadly, you know, and I think people can tell immediately if it's true engagement, if the, what they're doing makes a difference, or if it's just some sort of black hole that you put input into mm -hmm. and you don't really see how it affects anything or, you know, that it doesn't make a difference. And I think that is where you know, the OER conference has established such a strong ethos around participating, actually making a difference quickly and immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, you know, we, we trust people to respect 
the power that they have. Um, and, you know, I also embrace different voices. I certainly, you know, don't feel I have to be agreeing with everything everyone says at one of this event or every guest post that's published. But on the other hand, I value all the different voices. And, you know, I feel I've got a voice and other people have a voice and we all get to say something. Mm -hmm. And that sort of dialogue sometimes, you know, becomes quite political and sometimes it becomes quite precarious or sometimes it is difficult to manage and you feel, ooh, is this getting out of control? Or, you know, when you don't edit or moderate, you always run the risk of something exploding online and you didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. But I feel that without taking those risks, um, firstly, people don't learn that they have a responsibility to, as you say, think before they hopefully, you know, tweet or blog or, or say. Um, and I'm sure we all aim to do that. Um, but also, I feel that we don't benefit from the different voices in our community if we don't actually let them you know, have a say. And, and I think last year's OER conference um, is a great example where we had, you know, PhD students giving a, a keynote mm -hmm. and they came from all different corners of the globe. And um, one of our contributors um, was um, Caroline Kuhn as mm -hmm. well. And, um, you know, she did a, a wonderful job. And I think in most traditional settings, you probably wouldn't go out and think, oh, we have a conference keynote, big international conference, let's, you know, have three PhD students yeah. do that. Um, but that's the vision of the co-chairs that I really trust in and their judgment and their creative vision for it. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. And you were asking me um, before, you know, what I think makes the sort of the network how that how it works how it becomes a community and i think giving people power over those things is what what keeps them engaging with the community mm -hmm. and what keeps them you know um, being active and giving some time and effort to then benefit the the greater good so to speak <laughs> sounds a little bit cliche but i think it, it does work that way seems like there's at least a, a core of truth to that cliche at some part i think there's the the term or the, the 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 word agency that i always struggle to find the proper german translation for uh but that kind of goes with that as well yeah i can can see it and also one of, one of the things that i always when when i tell people about the oer conferences and they've never heard of them um, the thing that basically goes right after I said, like, this is the OER conference, but they don't only care about the resources part of open education. <laughs> I don't know, you probably, to, to some extent, you probably do the same if, yeah. if you meet people, when you meet people who have never heard of that, uh, of that conference before. But it, as you said, it goes into the politics, it goes into culture, it goes into um, who openness is for and uh, what what should be at the center, if there should be a center of openness and all that kind of um, meta-narratives around open education that, that are so important to, to the field, I think. Absolutely. I think it's much more about asking questions like whom is education for and how do mm -hmm. we enable people to, you know, make use of education in their context and what are the bigger picture issues that come with that and is it really for everyone and whom does it benefit or who pays for it or who gets paid for it mm -hmm. it's um it's a lot of big questions and i think the r um 
the R in OER is is definitely still there. Um, and I think, you know, the conference has its origins in the OER project in the UK, and it's a really um, proud tradition. And if any of you um, want to meet a very long surviving hashtag, it's, you know, the, the UK OER um, account is certainly um, the, lo the longest, one of the longest surviving uh -huh. for life, um, hashtag for life, yeah. um, hashtags that I've ever met. Um, but it has, you know, a proud history and an origin that we still care about, but it's by far more about um, beyond resource, beyond mm. tools and platforms. Those are still things we all care about, we need to talk about, but we do try and think about more critical perspectives. We're thinking about theory, about history, about the sort of, I think the, the knowledge and the thinking around openness in education. And more and more, I think, it bleeds into mainstream education, You know, much of the work mm -hmm. that's discussed at the conference is just as applicable to education as it is to open education. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. <laughs> um, looking at my my notes, I think one last bigger topic that I would like to touch upon in in our conversation is um, that you. Um, not sure how to how to put this, but I think the the I don't think it's insulting to say that you kind of self identify as part of the femetic community. Not insulting at all. Yeah. More, nope. to, more to the contrary. <laughs> um, but um, I would I was wondering if you could share a bit of how that came about. Kind of like uh, not as a history lesson, but kind of as like um, when did that kind of emerge as a Uh, me personally, I've seen Femetech as a hashtag, I think, mm -hmm. the first time two and a half years ago, kind of like mm -hmm. that. But um, I was probably not among the first to notice that. So if you could share a bit about like both your perspective on that, but also what that actually is, what it does, what it's what it's for, who it's for and who, <laughs> who sure. what, what kinds of issues it addresses. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about how, how I met Femetech. Mm -hmm. um, so... In 2012, when I started my current job, um, as the as the new CEO of this organization, I spent the first year of my job basically just introducing myself to people mm -hmm. because there are very many partners and stakeholders and members who I had to meet. And I don't think I was prepared at all, um, you know, from a personal perspective about how few women I was going to meet. And in general, how few people I was going to meet who were not the very typical senior management, white, middle-aged man. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I think all the people that I did meet, or the majority of them, were very surprised that I was not a middle-aged white man in a suit. Um, and so I, I, it really took me aback. Mm -hmm. You know, I was um, the way I grew up and the way I went to university – I, I was not that much of a committed feminist. I, I really did not see how much inequality, gender inequality specifically, there really was. And I think I was extremely fortunate in that my, you know, my family background, I always felt very much able to achieve what I set out to. I didn't feel held back because I was a woman or girl. Um, so I think this job really just introduced me to a whole new level of inequality 
a whole new level of misogyny mm. that I was ill prepared for. And, um, and I was just shocked and I was just, I could not believe that this was really the case. But the more meetings I went to and how it always repeated itself was, was the only woman at the conference, the only woman in the boardroom, the only woman at this ministerial group, the only woman I never got to say anything. You know, I mean, it was just such a boys club, um, as you would say in the UK. I was very taken aback. And then I gradually started making more connections with people um, as I established myself in my role. And I really tried to seek out role models of women in leadership positions who I could be inspired by, who I could follow, but also just looking for peers that I could connect with, who I could identify with more. And so I met a few um, men and women who became mentors, friends, guides to me. Um, but one of the things that I discovered is that other women also felt that educational technology, as it's quite close to the tech industry, which has got you know a real lack of women involved at all levels mm. in every way, um, I think we all decided that maybe we had been part of individual initiatives, individual projects, mostly local, some more national, but none, there wasn't really anywhere we felt that would bring all of these different projects together. And we kept going to these conferences and hearing about someone reinventing another girls who code or, you know, how to get into EdTech for women 101 type programs. Mm -hmm. And we thought what would be really cool is if we could make somewhere to share these different initiatives and make them aware of each other. And I think that's where, for me personally, um, where I discovered uh, the work of, you know, Frances Bell and um, Helen Beetham and mm. others who were involved in actually setting up this hashtag FemEdTech. And at the start, that's all it was, um, a hashtag, and we just started using it. And I don't think I was kind of the, the um, I was certainly maybe an early-ish adopter, but I wasn't the person who did that. Um, I was just a volunteer, someone to try to get involved. And once we set up um or once the twitter account was set up um we decided that we would make an effort to try and share its curation mm -hmm. because we were all doing this in our spare time and francis um i believe came up with this great idea inspired by indigenous x another twitter account which um i can't explain it sort of fully very well so you should definitely go in the show notes and check it out but it's very much got a shared curation model around um indigenous voices and okay. so we borrowed their model um this is a U u.s indigenous voices kind of um, platform um and so we borrowed their model and we thought we would just make um a shared document and we could all volunteer for two weeks to curate our fem edtech account and that's where it all started for us and since then with the work of you know now many hundreds of people and um very many guest curators including a couple of men who I think have have braved the uh, the all female lineup to to show their colors for equality. We have started to become more of a community, mm -hmm. and we've also found that meeting up at face to face events where a couple of us come um, together has become a, a thing which we do and um, i've actually brought my fem edtech t-shirt to this recording so i can wear it later and um and fly the the fem edtech flag and so the idea is really to try and promote um gender equality and in a broader sense equality more generally in educational technology 
We've done a couple of projects to do with the OER conference and we've also done things which are all online, like blog-based. We've done some things which are about values and how we relate to other types of inequality and how important they are and what our voices um, can contribute to that. And there's one project in particular that's going on at the moment that I have, <laughs> that I'm a little bit worried about, if I'm honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> so this project is um, for the OER conference in April next year in London, okay. and it's about making a quilt. Uh -huh. And it's a patchwork quilt made by contributors, and anyone is welcome to contribute a square. And you don't have to be a crafty person, which is where I'm worried because I am a non-crafty person, Christian. I cannot sew or stitch. I can very much relate to that. anything like that to save my life. Mm -hmm. So because we wanted to make it, well, basically we wanted to include people like me and you, mm -hmm. you can make a one on the computer and print it out and mm -hmm. bring it along. So that's possible. Better. Um, but so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was like, I can print this. Yeah. This will be fine. <laughs> But I think the idea is that, um, and this is very much, I think, um, colleagues are um, too many to mention, but it's a very much a community-led effort to create this quilt. Mm -hmm. And I've seen just on Twitter over the last couple of weeks, ever since the call came out, a really wonderful narrative developing where this project and his Twitter account have suddenly got interests from schools and universities in India who've inquired about oh, wow. how many mm -hmm. squares they could possibly contribute. There's contributors in the US. There's contributors all across Europe. There's contributors who are coming to the OER conference. There's contributors who might send stuff by post. Mm -hmm. There's squares being handed to friends who are then traveling with it to the OER conference. Almost like the Olympian fire. Yeah, almost. exactly. That's okay. exactly how uh -huh. it feels, you know, and it's all about social justice and equality in the context of the, the network. And I feel for me, when I see people, you know, f out of their own um, volition come to something like this and say, I'd like to contribute, mm -hmm. um, I think, Everybody wants to make their square. They want to have a little window to their voice, what mm -hmm. they care about. And um, it's a really powerful experience to be part of. So it's my privilege to be able to give, you know, free time that I have and any resources or skills that I have into the network. But I'm just one of many people who contribute. And um, it's one of those things that, um, you know, when you're having a bad day and you kind of think, what should I what should I do now to cheer myself? Well, I often go to the Femme Tech hashtag and look at all the really <laughs> cool ideas that people have shared and, you know, mm -hmm. yet another um, good book that someone's read. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there's um, one um, really That's good cool. book that I... I would really recommend if, if anybody's interested in reading about this, um, which is uh, by uh, Caroline um, Perez. Have you read that? It's um, like about... How does the uh, world is designed um, for for men? It's yeah. around sort yeah. of data, mm -hmm. um, the data, the gender data gap, mm -hmm. and um, there are some really fascinating technology angles. Invisible women, yeah, invisible women. About, that yeah. is it. Thank mm -hmm. you. And um, there's some really interesting technology angles. Mm -hmm. um, so if you use technology day to day in teaching or learning or personally, you should definitely read it. Mm -hmm. It's um, fascinating but there's also things that I never considered before reading this book such as um, many musical instruments are designed mm -hmm. 
you know, to fit. The piano, uh, I think, was an example, right? Yeah, sorry, exactly. Drop, Absolutely. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. typical male mm-hmm. body shapes or um, medical research, mm-hmm. you know, being not equal between genders. Yeah, or because it's relief so hard efforts. to assess women. And yeah, yeah, I remember <laughs> some confusing. of the stories. Yeah, it's too, just too confusing. But there's uh-huh. so much <laughs> really good research in this book. And some of the parts of this book I was quite skeptical about. And mm-hmm. I thought, I can't really believe that that's really true. Mm-hmm. And so I followed some of the references and the resources. And it's extremely well researched, very well referenced. So you can go and look it up for yourself. And you can you know, make up your own mind whether you think the narrative holds together. But I was, I was um, by turns outraged, but there's also um, laugh out loud moment for me. So when there was one pit that really made me giggle, which was about a car manufacturer <laughs> who had a voice controlled um, satnav and how you installed it. And one of the um, formal pieces of guidance that they gave to women who wanted to use this voice controlled satnav is that you could get it installed by a man because your atypical voice would probably not work with having it set up. So that really made me pause when you think about voice technology mm-hmm. or, you know, facial recognition or anything like that. Very interesting to dive more into that. I remember. Um I remember not reading it because, um, to be honest, I'm not I'm not a good reader of books. I'm more um, I listen to plenty of podcasts, but I think the uh, the the author was on on a podcast as well, and I have to look it up. I'll have to find it somewhere because she went into some of those examples as uh, almost like a deep dive, mm-hmm. like from from car technology and car safety standards um, to uh, medicine, medicine research, research, but but also plenty of other things and. Um, I'm sure there's there's one or two examples on non-learning and technology, or that could be transferred to learning and technology in there as well. So, absolutely, I think a, there's quite a, a few tip. YouTube videos mm-hmm. of her now as well. Mm-hmm. She's um, been invited to give many talks, and yeah, I think she's definitely um, one of the people who I'd love to see speak at one of our conferences yeah. in the future. And it's surprising, I think, when you go and consider the context of the more sophisticated types of learning technology that we can see, you know, already in the US, for example, um, using like retina scans Mm -hmm. or fingerprints or, you know, body scanners, sort of quite personal technology that is all about the body. Um, We know that certain types of algorithms and the data they're trained on can really disadvantage um, people of color Mm -hmm. or people who don't fit whatever model it is that the algorithm is trained on. People who don't look like the designers of the certain product. Uh, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that gives me pause for thought. And one of the things we we started with talking about was, you know, what are the things that have changed over the last sort of 10, 15 mm-hmm. years? And for me, that's probably one area that I would anticipate becoming a much bigger issue in the next 10 to 15 years as we become maybe more more aware of how we're being discriminated against by the technology that, you know, is all around us. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily with malicious intent, but nonetheless. That's almost... Um a more hopeful perspective than I'm usually exposed to, to be honest. Um, and I mean that as a compliment um, to, to see like things like FemedTech maybe, um, or communities like FemedTech is probably the best term to describe FemedTech in one word, um, to actually 
see a potential in them to make a dent and to make uh, change narratives or at least expose certain narratives and like uh, put a finger in that wound and say we we don't want that any longer so that thanks for that oh, i do um i feel very hopeful about the future of educational technology and while i completely respect that there are strong forces marketization and you know more sort of technological determinism that you know i feel very ambivalent about i do think we have a lot of power to mm -hmm. make change and i think every single person has a lot of power and responsibility to to use what influence they have in whatever sphere they're in in order to make a change and it sounds you know nearly too easy but it is absolutely possible and there's actually one um example from the uk where there is a um, sort of an adult and further education provider in Hull, which is a very deprived area mm -hmm. in the UK. Um, very strong social challenges for the community there, high unemployment. And there is a wonderful principal who runs the um, college there. And I've met her a number of times. And she is, I think, a great example and really inspirational for making this change because she took on this role and then she introduced a skills program where every single person whom she employs including cleaners housekeeping staff you know anyone who employs at the college is being skilled up at the same time and has okay. to participate and is trained and is learning about technology and they have really advanced technology there for engineering and science um, and they're really you know taking it to the next level to really engage people and to teach them exactly how it works so that they aren't just consuming or using the technology, but so they have a more empowered relationship with it. And she does that against all the odds, you know, with, with very challenging financial and economic circumstances. So I'm privileged in my role that I get to meet people all across, you know, my sector mm -hmm. who do make this change. And it is absolutely possible. So I'm hoping that with you know projects like the one we're recording this podcast for it will give people a greater sense that their voice does make a difference that it does matter and that this sort of exchange of oh this is what i'm doing in my corner here and what are you doing in your corner over there that i will actually help us feel less isolated and less like um you know whatever force in the universe like big tech or capitalism or politics or whatever it is that you think you know isn't giving you any any power in your relationship with technology that we'll feel more connected and feel a greater balance against that so i'm sure some people will be like oh this is a really naive idealistic point of view <laughs> um but i think there is you know scope yeah they they should prove you wrong first <laughs> better not no i like that um I know that uh, English podcast listeners will probably um, at least look at their uh, look at their their podcast app now and see that we've crossed the um, one hour mark. Uh, German podcast listeners will just will just have gotten going now. But I think um, to to maybe start wrapping it up to some extent at least. Um, is there something that you would have liked me to ask you, which I didn't? Is there something that you, I don't know, is there something you want to plug? Is there something that you'd like to go back to and then touch upon again? Is there 
certain topic and it's not obligatory so if if there's if there isn't anything and it will cross your mind a week from now we're not publishing this until like three weeks from now i think so we could also put it in the show notes but i wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of um not change roles but to kind of take the space and do whatever you want with it Oh, well, actually, we've we've had a really wide-ranging conversation. Uh -huh. So I think we've talked about many of the things that, um, that I was hoping to speak about. I suppose one of the things that I want to try and just reflect on maybe is that it's very rare for me to be able to have this kind of conversation about what work I do with a primarily German audience. Mm -hmm. And I suppose... For us in the UK, where I'm currently based, you know, international collaboration has become more and more important. Um, we have a really bleak landscape with Brexit that is making it look like collaboration with international partners and communities is going to become more difficult. And so I suppose I value it even more right now mm -hmm. to be able to build those relationships because I don't think that, you know, where my organization is moving towards, we're looking to collaborate less or communicate less internationally. And all of the things that we do, apart from two of our face-to-face -face events, are openly accessible. So I suppose I want to issue an, an, like an open invitation to say, you know, if any of this has piqued your interest and you are interested, the hashtag that our community uses on Twitter is hashtag AltC, so A-L-T-C. Um, and the C in that stands for community and collaboration. And sometimes it stands for conference and sometimes for celebration. But it certainly welcomes everyone and so if any of you are interested in connecting with us um, most of our community is active on twitter and so you're welcome to join us and 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 you know just say hello mm -hmm. we welcome anyone to walk into our into our coffee <laughs> um mornings um on twitter okay well thank you um so if people want to find more, find out more about you or find you on the web, I think um, one of the first addresses or URLs I would point them to is your personal blog. That is um, to be found at marindeepwell.com. Um, the tagline is blogging about being a CEO, anthropologist, and open practitioner in learning technology. So that's saying something. There, I'll also link to a profile of you on Alt um, or Alt Alt. Um, I'm still struggling with that. And link to your Twitter profile as well if people want to engage with you. I'm also quite sure that not everybody knows that we could have at least partially conducted this conversation in... Is it your mother tongue, actually? Yeah. Um, so we could just switch and uh, see see what that does to our English listeners. Then. <laughs> also, Sounds Deutsch good. ist deine Muttersprache. Yeah. <laughs> Was wir nämlich... Um, wir haben es vorhin, also vielleicht für, für Kontext, du bist, äh, du bist hier, weil die OEB-Konferenz ist ja. und äh, wir sind vorhin hier bei Wikimedia, wir zeichnen das hier bei Wikimedia auf in, in meinem Büro, ähm, äh, wir sind hier durchgegangen und du hast gesagt, eigentlich könnten wir das auch fast auf Deutsch alles ja. machen, ja, mit, mit Einschränkungen, mit Einschränkungen. <lacht> Du bist mit, ich glaube, 16 nach … Ja, das stimmt. Ja, ich mhm. bin ähm, mit 16 nach England ge, ähm, gezogen mhm. und ähm, ist jetzt mein schon seit langer Zeit mein, mein Heim. Mhm. Aber ja, ich habe … Leider ist mein deutscher Sprach ähm, 
ja, mein deutscher Sprachumfang, was Open Education angeht, mhm. recht limitiert, weil ja. ich sehr wenig Gelegenheit habe, auf Deutsch darüber zu sprechen, aber trotzdem sehr interessiert, ähm, hoffentlich auf Deutsch zu tweeten, das werde ich Aha. mal probieren. Okay, sehr gut. Dann der Hashtag, den du da benutzen möchtest, ist H-O-O-U für okay. die Hu oder der OERDE Hashtag, da findest du eigentlich die, die meisten Menschen. Ah, da werde ich mal nachschauen, Dankeschön. <lacht> I'll switch back to English to, to, to wrap it all up. But thanks for that experiment. I know it's, it's, it can be tough not speaking in a language that you're not using every day, yeah. day to day to be recorded. Although I, my I, mom will be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll send her a sound, sound bite of that. Um, yeah, th thanks for taking the time. I know, I know you're busy. I know you're, um, you'll be busy here in Berlin at the OEB conference at the event that we're planning for tonight. Um, thank you so much, Marin, to, for, for taking that time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me and I'm really interested to hear more about this community. I'm sure they got back to you on, on, on Twitter and, and everywhere else and I'm pretty sure you'll, meet, you'll be able to meet some at the OER conference even. Fantastic. Um, I hope people will come. So thank you very much for listening as well. Um, we're keen to hear any kinds of feedbacks, common, feedback comments or, or just, just questions to us. Um, On Twitter, that would be possible um, to to it would be possible to engage with the team of the Hamburg Open Online University at the Hamburg University of Applied Sciences. Quite a mouthful, but the Twitter handle is actually quite easy to find. It's uh, who, which is um, H O O U for Hamburg Open Online University, um, and then H A W for Hamburg um, Applied. Uh, HAW stands actually for Hochschule für Angewandte Wissenschaften, which means Hamburg University of Applied Sciences. I'll put it in the show notes as well. And you're also um, welcome to send us email at team uh, who, ha, o, u, u, um, or, on, or in English, see that's where, it's get, where it gets me, H-O-O-U uh, at H-A-W dash Hamburg dot D-E. Looking forward to your email. And thank you again so much, Marin, for, for the conversation. Uh, thanks and goodbye. Bye.